I was about to erupt in clearly uh, not even audible, just understandable obscenities, and I decided to to um, to eject. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The thing is because it's easy. It has a low bar of entry. All you have to be is sort of full of baloney and shake a lot of hands. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. Alex, today we talked to Congressman Mike Gallagher about the world and Vince Guerra about movies. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. I'm James Lilacs, and this is the Ricochet Podcast, episode 581. Peter Robinson, of course, is with us. Rob Long will be along in a second. And, of course, he will tell you to join Ricochet.com because that'll make you part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. Unlike usual shows where we blather along for a little while, we're going to get right to it, to our guest, Mike Gallagher. He serves as Wisconsin's 8th District in Congress, where he's the ranking member of the Military Personnel Subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee and the co-chairman of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. He serves seven years on active duty as a U.S. Marine Corps officer, including two deployments to Iraq. He's a BA from Princeton University and a PhD in international relations from Georgetown University. Welcome back, Mike. PhD in international relations. That's, uh, you know, we always go to the eggheads when we want to figure out what's going on in the world. So uh, here you are. Okay, stuff happening. Lots of speculation. Putin, G, what are they going to do? G, you know, maybe just saying to Putin, hey, why don't you hold off on the invasion until after my Olympics are over? I don't want you to steal my thunder and then go ahead so I can do what I want with Taiwan. Let's take Putin first. A lot of people are saying it's a big bluff. A lot of materiel for a big bluff. I don't think it's a bluff. I mean, a bluff implies you're playing a, a weekend, right? And he's clearly not, at least relative to the Ukrainians. And I think more to the point, he's taken the measure of this administration and concluded that there's a lot he can get away with. In fact, I've already, I already think he's shifted the conversation such that you hear statements coming out of Ukrainian politicians saying, well, maybe we'll give up any future bid to join NATO in order to, to de-escalate. And by the way, I don't think it should be explicitly part of our policy at the at present to encourage NATO enlargement. Part of, I think, um, uh, one category you have to satisfy when you apply to NATO is to have all your territorial disputes settled. That's obviously not the case in Ukraine. Um, I don't think there's any prospect of NATO joining Ukraine in the meantime, but we shouldn't allow Putin to dictate that to us, right? Like he doesn't get a say in NATO policy. So I don't think he's bluffing. I think this whole thing 72 hours ago that he was withdrawing was a complete head fake. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he's just looking for um, some sort of uh, thing where that he may manufacture where he can blame the Ukrainians and then invade. What we don't know is whether this is going to be a partial invasion, whether this is going to be the east of Ukraine, whether it's going to be some sort of move on Kiev, it could be a, a coup in Kiev, whether they're just going to take sort of the coastal areas, 
basically turned Ukrainian into landlocked power and therefore economically irrelevant. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd be guessing if I could speculate. But I think he's going to do something. And the fact that the Biden administration has basically said we're only going to impose sanctions after the fact, and we've all we've ruled out entirely any military response has completely undermined our deterrent posture. And so just to connect that quickly to Xi, I think you're right. I think, well, one, we had this 5,000 word statement that um, Putin and Xi signed uh, based on a meeting they had last week, wherein they talked about, um, you know, this friendship uh, is, is ripe for endless cooperation. No areas are, are off limits. Uh, this is very interesting and troubling. After all, these are these are very strange bedfellows. Uh, they were, during the second half of the Cold War, um, very antagonistic. They have territorial disputes that are temporarily resolved, but there are interests that don't align. But I think they've found they are aligned in undermining the West. And I think she is in the very enviable position of being able to sit back and not only watch Putin divide the West further, but also really go to school on the type of warfare that we're seeing play out in Ukraine. I mean, you can think about this as sort of the world's best laboratory for hybrid warfare right now. And as we know, Xi's legacy issue is the forceful reunification of Taiwan with the mainland. And so he gets to sit back and, and basically, basically assess how the West responds to this crisis, take notes. And I think if anything, this um, expedites his timeline for making a move on Taiwan. I, I think we're, we've entered the decade of maximum danger. And I think particularly after the elections in Taiwan, which are in January of 2024, I, I think we really enter the window where this could become more likely. Well, we have 47 questions after what you just said. So, but I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. No, no, it's just great stuff. Um, before I hand it over to Peter and Rob, uh, let's just stick with Ukraine and Putin. What he recently said, basically, is it, it, he, it's not only that he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. He wants states that have been admitted to NATO to be kicked out. Right. So he, he's demanding even more. Well, and think of I mean, just think of the what he's already done to Germany. Right. Uh, a cornerstone of NATO is, is basically uh, uh, supplicating uh, at Putin's energy altar right now. I mean, it's it's astounding to see how far. And incidentally, and I don't mean this to be like a you know Trump versus the anti-Trump forces thing, but remember one of the chief criticisms of the Trump administration was just how far they were driving our European allies in general and Germany in particular away from us, right? And this was a core thing that Biden campaigned on. It was restoring our alliances, particularly those with Europe. This whole situation has driven Germany further away from certain uh, Western European countries, particularly uh, the Brits. Um, if, if Nord Stream 2 is allowed to go forward, as the Biden administration opened the floodgates for it to go forward, uh, I, I see that process continuing. And that is a massive dilemma for the stability and strength of NATO uh, going forward. And we've given Putin so much leverage because of our own counterproductive energy policy in America, which started in week one with the cancellation of Keystone Pipeline. I can't think of something better designed to give Putin a geopolitical gift than us waging war on our own domestic energy production. The whole thing doesn't make sense to me, uh, not just from a conservative perspective, but from a pure 
geopolitical realpolitik perspective that makes no sense to me at all. And I'm left to conclude that what's driving those decisions in the Biden administration is the enormous pressure from the left when it comes to climate change. Um, And you see that same pressure screwing up what should be a bipartisan China policy right now, which we can get into if you want, but I'll, I'll pause for now. Mike, con- Congressman, by the way, our viewer, our listeners should know that we're recording this on Zoom and we can see something that they should be told about, which is that despite this Princeton, Princeton, Princeton degree <laughs> and PhD from Georgetown, a distinguished military career, and now a big shot in Washington, Mike Gallagher is at home speaking to us wearing a hoodie. He is, he is a man of Wisconsin, and it's winter in Wisconsin. Mike, there is a strategic debate playing out in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. Elbridge Colby wrote a piece the other day saying, China is the whole game. Do not be distracted. The Europeans are rich enough and powerful enough to handle Russia on their own, and they must, because if we send even a small force over there, the attention, the mind space that that takes in the Pentagon, the support, the ships, the way that our, all our forces have to be rejiggered to support guys on the ground, even a very few, relatively small, all right. And then John Bolton answered yesterday saying, wait a minute, these two go together. Any weakness in Europe will only strengthen Xi's hand. We don't have the choice to play only China. We have to face russia and china at the same time all right you have the you have the credentials i just named you're on one of the committees that's receiving intel briefings that's in close touch with the administration where do you come down well in true political fashion i would suggest you could add bolton to bridge divide by two and the right policy is probably uh, along (laughs) those lines but here's where i think first of all let me say i i think um bridge's book uh, strategy of denial is exceptional. I, I recommended it in the Wall Street Journal as the best book of the last year. I, I think it's really an achievement. And uh, full disclosure, you know, I'm, I'm friends with with Bridge. However, I I don't I disagree with him uh, on this specific issue. You know, I think in the same way that we saw the fiasco in Afghanistan and the embarrassing, humiliating surrender in Afghanistan undermined our deterrent posture in Europe in the Indo-Pacific, I I don't think you could sort of neatly divorce deterrence in Eastern Europe from deterrence in Indo-PACOM. And I think, and I think history shows that uh, when we don't aggressively confront small problems, they devolve into bigger problems. And perhaps the best way to undermine our readiness in our priority theater, which to Bridges point is the Indo-Pacific. And I agree that China is our biggest threat. And I agree that Taiwan is our most important and most stressing defense priority and that most of our resources should be focused on that problem. So I agree with him in part. However, if we don't use American power in a smart way to lead our allies uh, in Eastern Europe and prevent this crisis from devolving into a broader conflict, I think ironically it could end up consuming more resources, the very resources that Bridge wants to save. And I just would say it should be possible to do this on the cheap because, and this is where Bridge is the evangelist of deterrence by denial, which at its heart is a defensive strategy. We're not seeking to 
overturn the status quo in Ukraine. No one's proposing to go back into Crimea and take it from the Russians. We have a fundamentally defensive strategy, which has inherent strengths. And we should, if we were smart and if our bureaucracy wasn't broken, we could have armed the Ukrainians to the teeth to allow them to better defend themselves. We could have not allowed the Germans to Finlandize further towards Russia. We could have moved naval assets to the Black Sea. We could have gotten Turkey's permission. There's this weird treaty that uh, we could have gotten around it. We could have put in place a lot of things, I believe, that would have forced Putin to back down or not even try this in the first place. And I fear sometimes people, bridge, I may, this is unfair to bridge, but people that are advocates for not getting involved at all are offering us this false choice between full scale war with Russia or doing nothing. Uh, there, there are plenty of options in between. For example, this is not going to be a cakewalk for the Russians. I mean, I, earlier I said, he's not bluffing. He has a good hand to play, but I don't know of any other time in modern history where a great power, or we could disagree of whether Russia is a great power, but a, 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 mili- a true military power in a conventional sense is going to go up against uh, armed UAVs uh, yeah, uh, like the Russians right. are. I mean, this is going to be an interesting military problem. And at a minimum, we've could, we could have made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for Putin to achieve his objectives without deploying battalions and battalions of our soldiers, sailors, or airmen that bridge wants to use in the Pacific, if that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, um, Congressman, it's Rob Long. Thanks for joining us. So can I just take, I have a couple questions. But I want to start with, start with that. Um, it seems to me, and I, I, you know, what do I know? I'm just a writer, uh, that, that Putin has a terrible hand that we've allowed him to turn into a winning hand or a near winning hand. There is no scenario in which I think in which American forces after disasters in Iraq and Afghanistan are going to go to defend Ukraine. There is a a, a huge possibility that American money and arms could end up in Ukraine to defend or to participate in what will be an incredibly disastrous quagmire for Putin. Isn't it possible that the American president, whoever he is, should say to Putin, we can't stop you. Go ahead and do it. We can't stop you. Uh, you know we can't stop you. Go ahead. The years of the penalties you're gonna you're gonna suffer. Sanctions, no Nord Stream, et cetera, et cetera. In, enjoy your war in Ukraine. It will be a disaster, and you will end up like many Russian leaders before you, disappearing in the night. I mean, it, it, and and the comparison between Russia and China. Russia is a it, Russia is a dream. Uh, scenario for us. We have, we're talking about one pipeline. That's really one pipeline. We could pull the plug on Swift. It's over, right? China, China is a complicated five-dimensional chess game for us. That is not going to be easy. If, if they decide they want to take Taiwan, that is going to be enormously disruptive to the American economy in a way that they have much more leverage on us. It just seems like we have a very easy tinker toy version here with Ukraine and a very complicated probably losing hand in China, part of the game should be for us to win in Ukraine, to win that bluff, to show that we are willing to go to the wall, even though Putin and Germany and the UK and all of our NATO allies know that we're absolutely not going to send troops there. You know, if I, if I believe the Biden administration had the, the creativity and the, the 
the stones for i'm i don't i'm not allowed no don't want i'm allowed to say on this, this podcast here yeah you may be wearing a yeah. hoodie but not all yeah. our listeners are yeah. <laughs> peter's in a very sophisticated library and i'm just bringing the this has become a, <laughs> it's a very background low dude it's a virtual background yeah. he's in his bedroom yeah <laughs> um uh, if I, if I had confidence in their ability to deliver that message as well as actually deliver on the promise post invasion on both Swift and Nord Stream, which I I'm actually not a hundred percent convinced right, despite this right. administration's rhetoric that, that they'll shut down the pipeline and kick the Russians off Swift. I'm not convinced. Okay. I, I could see that argument. I'd be willing to play out the real uh, politique. And if it were married to a either a covert or an overt strategy of turning this into a complete quagmire for right. Putin, I, I could see that. But I just I, I think in some ways the Biden administration is is winding up with the worst of both worlds. Right. They're having all this happy talk about defending the Ukrainians and the West stands in solidarity against right, Putin. Right, and right. Putin, Putin's going to get disinvited to Davos and he'll face another strongly worded statement from the State Department. Uh, like, it's like these people like like, like they're right. living in some model U.N. conference. Right. It's just not <laughs> exactly. how Putin operates or, or sort of mirror imaging the sort of our value structure onto the Russians. I'm just not confident in that. And I, I don't think he's, he's, he could um, implement such a strategy effectively. And then more to the point, I think a lot of the, the voices on the right that are saying, Oh, we, we shouldn't get involved at right. all. And I, I think prudence is a healthy impulse in, in, in grant when it comes to matters of grand strategy, I get it. Right. But I think they're misunderstanding a few things. One, they're suggesting that we could somehow work with the Russians to balance them against China over the long term. If that were possible, like sign me up and, and then you could really play out the real politic and there'd be a lot you'd be willing to compromise on that. It's just not possible in the short term. I see no evidence of it. You, you want to so get I, in? Sorry. I, I just yeah. I have one, I have one more. And I know that Jace wants to get in. Um, anyway, my, my, pri my priors are this, that we're not going to send troops to Ukraine. You're right. That we're not going to send troops. I mean, this is no hypothetical. I think we're probably getting a little ahead of ourselves to defend Taiwan. There's a whole bunch of places we're not going to send our troops. Um, we spent a whole lot of money on defense. We have the biggest armed forces next to the next six, right? Um, are we spending the money wrong? I'm not saying, are we spending too much money? Are we spending it in the wrong way? Are we spending on the wrong things? Um, if uh, if, you know, there was that gruesome uh, message from Russia saying we will have to look at it for, for military and technical response to this, these issues, technical response, meaning cyber war, right? Are we, uh, are we mess we're, since we're not going to go to war with a nuclear power, Russia, and not going to go to war, a land war with a, a nuclear power, China, um, and, a, and a strategic uh, partner, uh, economic partner, China, um, are we arming ourselves for the war that we're not going to have and not arming ourselves for the war that we are going to have? Great question. The question. And by the way, on cyber, I also, and speaking of a laboratory of modern warfare in Ukraine, I think this is sort of the first conflict in which cyber operations will be, and, and electronic warfare will, will really be fully integrated in, into conventional kinetic conflict. Obviously, these weapons are in use every day, but right. sort of really married to you know, a Russian unit crossing this bridge and then using cyber to shut down a, a power facility to nearby. I think it's going to be really interesting. We are spending money on the wrong things in at least a few ways. One, 
just like the rest of society, uh, the costs that are driving up the DOD budget are largely personnel costs. They're health care and retirement right. costs. If you compare the Reagan buildup in real terms to the Obama drawdown, we spent more on the Obama drawdown. And it wasn't because our ships got more expensive or our missiles got more expensive, though they did. And that's a problem of bureaucracy and sort of the ossification of the defense industrial base, which we can get into. Um, it, it is, it is, it is the cost of healthcare and retirement. The military is, is at risk of becoming a massive retirement and healthcare organization with some GM thrown in the mix. That's what they said right? about GM. The end of GM, that's what they said was 80% of it was just healthcare and retirement. Benefits. And Arnold Punaro, retired Marine general, wrote a, wrote a great book recently on the subject that I would commend to everyone. The second thing, and this is where I'm a bit of a Luddite, if you believe a conflict over Taiwan is likely within this decade and the timing, your assumption, the timing is everything. And this really gets to the core of the Secretary Austin's defense strategy right now. Then we're spending money on the wrong things because they're adopting this divest to invest strategy. We're going to divest of legacy platforms in order to invest in all these fancy new technologies that won't become operational until the 2030s at the earliest, right? right. There's an earlier version of this uh, in the Obama administration called the third offset strategy. I think it represents a naive religious faith in some technological offset that's going to save us from actually having to invest in hard power, specifically missiles and subs and autonomous underwater vessels and forcing the Taiwanese to mine their port facilities and having long ring missiles to blow up the amphibious assault vessels, the row row ferries when they get into that. So I, I don't want to go on, but I think we are, we need to put hard power into these places in the next three years and not invest in fantastical technology that won't be operational for another decade. Right. And that's why this whole concept of integrated deterrence, which is going to be the new national defense strategy, it's malarkey. It's, it's a fantasy. It's a buzzword designed to justify cutting money for actual things that we need, like missiles, guns, bombs and ships. So I don't know if any of that made sense. No, no. Missiles, guns, bomb ships make it very, very difficult and costly for the invasion, right? That's the whole idea. Make it and I would, I would cost further, on day one. And I think this is a core difference with this administration. I think hard power gives life to our diplomacy and our soft power. They don't seem to get the connection. between. I, I, I sort of think they're engaged in diplomacy for diplomacy's sake, disconnected from hard power realities, which is really the variable that Putin and she care about at the end of the day. They're not worried about the condemnation of, of the UN or right. the, not that they would because they've corrupted the UN, right? Congressman, true or false, if Israel can remain an independent country with a vibrant democracy and a really hot with it economy, then so can Taiwan. And it's a question ultimately of political will. I completely agree with that. Okay. Yeah, it's a, I completely agree with that. This has been the problem. You know, it's it's not just political will. I mean, it's political polarization and infighting between the parties uh, in Taiwan. Uh, I just introduced a, a bill that would basically condition U.S. assistance to Taiwan on them investing in asymmetric capabilities. So a lot of the problem with Taiwan is not only that they've been infiltrated and in some ways compromised by the CCP, but... They're, they're investing in, in these platforms that don't make make sense for uh, to counter an invasion force, where if they were to invest in in mines, in missiles, in key defensive capabilities, I actually think they could 
they could defend the country. That's also not an easy defense problem for the PLA uh, to solve. Uh, and clearly, uh, in terms of economic ingenuity, the success and unparalleled dominance of TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor, uh, shows that this is a country, this is an amazing story uh, of a country with, with a ton of economic power and economic ingenuity. But that's also what makes them a, an attractive target for the CCP. And imagine the economic leverage we give General Secretary Xi Jinping if he controls effectively, if you add theirs to China's semiconductor, it's like 80% of the world's production capacity right there. It's, it's a disaster. You mentioned underwater autonomous vehicles, which are handy for making things go oops on pipelines like Nordstrom, um, which brings us back to gas. And speaking of gas, by the way, yes, your gut. And what's in your gut? Your microbiome. Why does that matter? Well, it's this. Over time, people with type 2 diabetes lose the gut bacteria that help them digest fiber and manage blood glucose levels. For those with type 2 diabetes, diet and exercise alone are often not enough to manage it. The best approach emphasizes diet, exercise, and a healthy gut microbiome. Our sponsor, Pendulum Glucose Control, is the first and only medical probiotic clinically shown to help manage type 2 diabetes when taken with medication. It's designed to lower A1C and after-meal blood glucose levels to help you manage your type 2 diabetes. It can feel like an uphill battle to keep post-meal blood sugar and A1C levels where you need them. And if you've struggled to manage them with diet and exercise alone, Pendulum can help fill in the gaps. Pendulum's team of scientists, doctors, and innovators isolated the unique strains of beneficial gut bacteria that help people with type 2 diabetes manage their blood sugar levels. Pendulum is the only place to purchase a newly isolated, highly sought-after strain called Ackermansia. It's formulated and bottled in the U.S. with the highest safety and quality standards and verified by the non-GMO project. With Pendulum, you can feel in control of your levels, not the other way around. And if Rob were here, which unfortunately he's dropped off for a moment, he would tell you that he uses it and he's a big fan. And that's coming from a guy who doesn't have to say so and is also able to pronounce Ackermansia without prompting, which tells you he's done some re. Two, one. If you or someone you love has type 2 diabetes, take control of glucose levels with Pendulum Glucose Control. Use the code Ricochet at PendulumLife.com to get 20% off all your products. That's P E N D U L U M L I F E.com. Promo code Ricochet for 20% off. And we thank Pendulum for sponsoring this. The Ricochet Podcast. One of the things that we have in our in our toolkit is uh, Nordstrom, Nordstrom sanctions. But Germany doesn't want that. Germany sort of rolls their eyes when that subject comes up and says, "Oh, we'll look at everything." Um, but they need that now. The United States, as I understand, is the world's largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. Now it's different to put it into you know into cans and ship it across the ocean. But how much capacity does the United States have to make up for those shortfalls if indeed something happens to the pipeline, either diplomatically or <clears throat> by other means? So I actually convened a group of of LNG nerds recently to to help me answer. I don't I, I don't remember the answer uh, the actual like sort of uh, quantitative way in which they answered this, but the rough math is that if you had it like a concerted strategy where America was going to supply Europe and other regions around the world, and we we were just going to totally weaponize this massive uh, 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 domestic uh, gift. Uh, we've been it. It's unfair to call it a gift because it's a product of, of innovation in America. 
it would still take three to five years before you would see an actual impact at, I mean, maybe that's a conservative estimate. So I don't think you could just plug American energy into Europe right now and solve Germans, Germany's problem. And throughout Europe, they've had a massive energy crisis uh, over the last year. But I do think if we had a national strategy for this, this is something that we could solve over the next decade uh, for sure. Um, you know, part of the problem, too, is the way in which the euros have, have disinvested in uh, certain forms of energy, particularly nuclear energy. We've done the same uh, here uh, in America. Uh, and you talk about things like nuclear microreactor technology. That's something we that's that's something the Chinese want to corner the market on right now. We have to invest more in that. That's also a useful thing to take certain military bases off the grid. Right. So they're not vulnerable to cyber attacks. But to answer your question, I still think it, it would take a, a little bit, but I worry this administration, a little bit of time. I worry this administration was prior to this considering even more foolish policies, like reinstating a ban on exporting uh, mm -hmm. LNG. I mean, you could, you could oh, yeah. see that in a second right. Democratic administration. I actually went back and examined Obama's energy policy. I mean, it wasn't bad compared to the Biden administration. It wasn't like actively hostile uh, in the way the Biden administration is. And I just fear we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot right now. Yeah, right. Well, France has announced they're going to have 12 new nuclear reactors. So they might be there in a position go. to export something there. But right, we, I mean, we have, we are, our export infrastructure is better. We've got more port facilities now to get it. But to hear that we're still years away from doing this. And you don't see any indication that there is this idea, that there, there is a, a recognition of this as a strategic asset. I, well, at least on the Republican side, I mean, I would expect this to be a you know core plank of every 2024 contender on our side of the aisle. You've seen, yeah. you know, Secretary Mike Pompeo has been talking about this a lot on TV. Um, I, you know, who else among the 2024 contenders? You know, the other guy who's really good on on these issues, connecting defense, geopolitics to energy, is uh, Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan. I mean, he he really is a very eloquent uh, spokesman on these issues and cares passionately about them. He's actually thought deeply too about how we can leverage our energy dominance and innovation in order to shore up certain alliances in Asia, particularly the Quad, uh, with Japan and India uh, and Australia. Uh, there might be might be a play there as well. Um, Mike, you, you, you just mentioned our contenders in 2024. Yeah. 2022 comes first. What are you hearing? How many seats are we expecting to win in your chamber? I see no reason to dis disagree with the conventional wisdom that we are going to win the House very handily, uh, unless something crazy uh, happens. Because it's not only that the environment favors us, uh, and it's not only that, that I think the Democratic Party has gone so far in the direction of, of radical identity politics. You talk about, you know, what are, are we spending uh, – uh, uh, you know, are we not spending on the right things in the military? Well, one of the things that worries me the most – is the way in which a lot of the, the the woke identity politics is now infecting the military and the growth of the DEI bureaucracy in the military. It's a very real thing, and people are getting off active duty because they're turned off by this. It's a huge, huge problem. So I think how long how long would it take to fix that? Well, how bad is the military? I you gave a speech about this the other day. I read excerpts of the speech. Some of the DEI intrusions into military life that you mentioned that you cited. Not just what might happen, but what is happening. Classes on so-called white privilege at West at West Point. It is. It, I was shocked. I had no idea it had got, become that bad, that fast. How quickly can that be fixed? I think with the right Secretary of Defense, it could be. It, the The core DEI bureaucracy could be 
uprooted in a matter of months. Now, the thing is, you'll face institutional resistance from the Pentagon because all of these services, uh, in part because they feel pressure from their political overlords right now, are are saying nonsensical things that are completely un, uh, unsupported by by data, right? The Navy's new mantra is diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Okay. <laughs> On some level, we all get, okay, we live in a... Div- Ships are our exactly. strength. Exactly. What idiots. I, in, in, what Aegis, idiots. Aegis systems are our strength. I know. <laughs> in this speech, in this speech, I said, in this speech, I said, uh, and I'm offended you only read excerpts, Peter. You really got to read the whole thing repeatedly every <laughs> no. night. I said, strength is our strength, as in physical strength. Actual end strength is our strength. Oh, that's a better line. What is the the motivation for these people going to this? Because it it seems like we're going to teach you what an awful, rotten, historically corrupted society this is, so you'll be all the more encouraged to fight on its behalf. That is the essential point. How are you going to convince young men and women to die for their country if you're telling them the country is evil? And oh, by the way, in the process, validating... The primary propaganda attack uh-huh. of our foremost adversary. If you follow these wolf war, so-called wolf warrior diplomats yeah. mm-hmm. on Twitter, all they do is promote Antifa and BLM rhetoric and 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 foster this narrative that America is a racist hellscape where cops are constantly shooting people because they don't like the color of their skin. It's absolute nonsense. Well, uh, go ahead. Yeah, he put I want to reiterate just Peter's question. If the core motivation of the military is being hollowed out or attempted to be hollowed out and our chief by DEI and our chief leverage point, which is natural gas and our own energy production is being hollowed out in the sense that you, we can't build, uh, we can't frack and you can't build a natural gas pipeline in the United States, but we can certainly endorse one for Putin. Is this surrender? This feels like surrender to me. Well, I, I mean, I think there's good reason to believe that a country such as ours actually won't um, collapse due to some external threat. That it will that it will be to, due due to internal uh, decay. Though the two things are are connected, I would say. What what astounds me is that we we've kind of had multiple. I know this metaphor is overused and misused, but multiple Sputnik moments, and we just haven't had that galvanizing moment where we're like, hey, you know, we need to beat the commies and the fascists like you know they're trying to destroy us like let's all let's all you know we can disagree on stuff but let's all work together on that that basic point but yeah i'm I'm very worried and honestly i was not inclined to to pay much attention to this i thought it was just sort of a very fringe left ideology and even initially when when secretary austin did his 60 day stand down to confront extremism i thought okay you're going to force some people to watch dumb PowerPoint presentations and waste an hour out of a Marine's day. Not great, but not an existential threat for the military. The more I dug into this and the more I saw this same ideology destroy higher education and K through 12 education in America, the more I've become convinced that it is a massive problem for the military and we should not tolerate any of it. And oh, by the way, it's just based on garbage social science. Read these studies that the Navy is citing to ju- not only justify, but quantify the assertion that diversity is our strength. They're garbage. I know we're out of time. Can I just give you a flavor of one? I, I've just become obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with this. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. We're the one. Yeah. It's your staff. We're going to enter the end well, of the weekend already pre-irritated by this. Until I hear my wife yelling at me, I could probably get away with a oh. few more minutes. But okay. So they say, let, let me pull this up here. They, they So they have this report that came out after the death of George Floyd called Task Force One Navy. And in it, they say that 
Uh, diverse teams are 58% more likely than non-diverse teams to accurately assess the situation. So it raises a question, what type of diversity are you talking about? Well, they're talking about racial diversity. They're never talking about intellectual diversity, the one type of right. diversity that might actually improve combat performance or intellectual uh, performance. Right. It's all based on this one study from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where they took 180 people trained in business or finance. They had a diverse group and they defined the diverse group as giving as making white people interact with black people for like five minutes. And then they and then they had a, a just a, a group of just white people. And then they sent everyone to individual computer terminals by themselves where they made uh, bets on in a fake stock market. It was all about price bubbles in a fake stock market. And then they tried to say that the diverse teams outperformed the non-diverse teams. So I, it's not even clear to me that that study is generalizable to the world of finance, let alone to the specific business of killing people, right? I mean, it's an offense yeah. to common sense. And it goes way further than that, the more you dig into this. So, and honestly, because of that, it obscures what, what is an interesting question that I would want an answer to. I'm actually interested in the, in the, the question of what, how do teams perform best under pressure, specifically the pressure of combat? But you're bringing us further away from understanding this and you're bringing us further away from the truth. Because I can tell you not only based on my own experience, but on, on the experience of just thousands of people of my generation that served in the military. This lie that the left is pushing, and make no mistake, they're pushing it, that the military is endemic with extremists from the right is, is just that. It's a total lie. Are there racists in the military? I, I'm sure there are. And we should not tolerate that. We should not tolerate any discrimination. But this idea that the U.S. military's top problem is domestic extremism, there's no support for, for that argument at all. The military led the way for racial integration yeah. in 1948. Mm -hmm. Read the memoirs of the Korean War, right? There's a great one called Colder Than Hell, where he talks about this. And he says, yeah, we had some people from the South that were uncomfortable with this, but the politicians had hollowed out our military. And the overwhelming thought was black or white, a Marine was a Marine. We needed everybody we can fight with. That's the same sentiment in the Marine Corps today. I I'm telling you. So the politicians are trying to concoct a narrative to justify the expansion of the woke DEI bureaucracy. Ironically, they're stoking racial tension that didn't exist before uh, in the military. So sorry, I went on a diatribe no, there. I don't even Congress, remember the initial I have to ask question. one last yeah. question, and I need to get you on the record on this. You just said we're going to retake the House, and that means that Speaker McCarthy is going to name you chairman of some big time committee. And I can't wait because the service secretaries and the secretary of defense and all the top brass are going to have to sit up when you, when you tell them things like you just told us. Terrific. But here's the question. When you become a real big shot in Washington and everybody <laughs> starts referring to you as Mr. Chairman, will you still remember us peasants here at Ricochet? I, well, I may, I may at that point uh, even uh, afford to, to dress in things that aren't hoodies, right? I could wear a suit and actually look comfortable. <laughs> but uh, the answer is no, yeah. Peter. Of course, <laughs> I will say because I, I would I, right now I'm, I'm the ranking member on the military personnel subcommittee, so that's why I dig into these issues. I did ask the head of Navy personnel 
uh, these questions uh, two weeks ago. And this is the guy who suggested that we need to bring back photos for promotion boards so we can enforce diversity, i.e. judge people by the color of our skin. And I asked him, so what evidence do you have for for the the claim that diversity is our strength. And he's like, well, there's been some private sector studies, but you know, he, 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 it was clear to me he was unaware of the very things he had cited in this study. So um, I actually think we need, we need help from people in academia who really understand methods to expose the craziness that, that's going on here. I mean, there's a lot of numbers being thrown around that are just totally absurd. So I do look forward to further oversight of this if, if I'm lucky enough to be a, a subcommittee chairman uh, and we all know that that's where the real power lies in Washington. That's true. Know, that's true. Subcommittee chair. <laughs> that's right. We want. Well, to- hurry up. We don't have much time, according to uh, the the map that I'm looking at. We've got encroaching on the in the in the east, encroaching on the west. Uh, we need a little. Uh, we need a, a helmsman right at this point. Well, twenty. I, re- I just wrote. A, sorry, I'm in shameless self promotion on, on your podcast, but the speech I gave at Hillsdale and it should be available somewhere on the interwebs. Um, we'll, we'll post. We'll post, it. post oh, cool, we'll post, cool. We'll, the other thing we'll post I just published yesterday with uh, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies was something called Battle Force 2025, where I tried to answer this question of what, if you believe that a Taiwan invasion is more likely at some point this decade and is not a distant threat, what what could you actually do to prevent that from happening without completely screwing up your long-term investments? So I assume that's on the FDD website. It's called Battle Force 2025. So you want my thoughts on how we solve this Taiwan, Taiwan problem in the next few years. That's uh, I, I try to write them all down. Do we want your thoughts on the most important strategic <laughs> yes. diplomatic question of the day? Yeah, I think we would like your thoughts on that. Yeah, Thank so, you. So don't forget us. When you're Secretary of Defense in the DeSantis administration, we want to see you, of course, in your full suit, but we also want to see a wedge of styro <laughs> foam cheese on your on your head to let us know that you haven't forgotten your roots yeah, what about turning cheese curds into ethanol mike if you looked into That's, that uh, i mean hey the, the center of gravity in america is at lambeau field everything east of detroit <laughs> is just strategic depth my friends so i wish you'd won i wish you'd won because <laughs> if you won true. we beat you at some point so if you win the super bowl it would be like us winning the super bowl because we're better than you uh, <laughs> we blew it you know we'll, we'll just leave you with that and the thought that you said before it was great when we had national self-determined uh, national self-realization that we had to defeat the the fascists and the communists. The problem now, it seems, is that too many people believe that they have to defeat the fascists at home so that we all then can ourselves become communists. <laughs> that seems to be the way it's flipped now. That's well. Put. So, with that in mind, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, and thank we'll you guys. Talk to you again. Look forward to coming Bye-bye. back. Bye. Take care, Mike. Yeah, it's a scary future out there, and you want your child to be prepared for the best of it, no matter what may come. But, you know, and that depends on a good education. And even in the best schools, you know, your child probably isn't getting the one-to-one teaching that they need to reach their full potential. In a classroom with dozens of kids, teachers just don't have the time to customize their approach. Well, at Byju's School, students receive personalized attention and world-class learning experience completely online to supplement their in-person school education. With small group and one-on-one learning, Byjuice's Future School is committed to helping students become creators and shift from passive to active learning while building skills they'll use for the rest of their life. Students receive personalized attention from world-class teachers who are trained to address their unique learning needs, no matter the subject they're learning. Byjuice's math and music courses help build a foundation of knowledge and self-confidence. And with Byjuice's coding course, students can explore the fundamentals of coding through their favorite games like Roblox or Minecraft. They'll have tons of fun while learning about the technology that makes modern games and apps and cryptocurrencies possible. So join the millions of parents accelerating their kids' learning today. 
right now. Byjuice is future you know what? I'm going to do this after listeners. Their first have my, class my, my free. Back. Just go to byjuice.com slash podcast to sign up for your first class. Absolutely free. Give it a look. See if it's for you. Be impressed. Be amazed at byjuice.com slash podcast. And we thank Byjuice for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Vince Guerra. He's an author. He's an Alaskan. He's a father of eight, but you know, none of that matters. What really counts about Vince, most importantly, he is a Ricochet member. And he's the godfather of Ricochet's movie fight club, where members, and might I add, only Ricochet members, duke out their picks for the best and sometimes the worst that Hollywood has to offer. You know how much people love to talk about politics? You know, that's piker stuff compared to the arguments and disputations people can get into when they talk about movies. And of course, everybody's taste is correct. And it's a great place to read and hash out and think about movies. And just right. So we asked, we asked Vince to come on and uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, movie Fight Club and why it's one of the things that makes Ricochet so great, because there's so much more to life than politics. All right. Yeah. Good morning, guys. So we started it in 2020, summer 2020, when everything was going crazy, just as a, an opportunity to spend some time on a Saturday and not talking about riots and not talking about elections and not talking about politics and just do something fun. So we started off movie fights by Andy. That's kind of what it was based on. And it was just an opportunity for members who love movies to talk about movies. So what we did is that the way it works is we post a question about movies, we end up fighting about it for a week and in the comments and everybody has an opinion. And so <laughs> by the end of the week, by that Friday, whoever's got the most likes on their answer for that movie question, then they choose the next question. And so we've been doing that for two years now. We're up to fight number 99. We're starting tomorrow. And yeah, it's been great. Wow. A hundred fights. So wait, okay. So just so I understand it, because like the most recent one was about uh, uh, best tear jerkers, right? Uh, that was a couple ones ago. Last week, the one we're actually ones doing tomorrow is um, best, um, the best makeup or the best most transformative or the most actor, actor or act- without using extensive makeup right. and CGI. Uh, yeah, and using- I, I gotta say, I've already, I've already, I've already cast my vote. Just so you know. Because I think I mean I, I don't remember who 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 I'm voting for, but uh, it's Gary Oldman without a doubt. I'm pretty it's Gary sure Oldman. Elsie well, for Churchill. It. I think it was Churchill, Gary Oldman in the Darkest Hour. I'm pretty sure she's got that nail. Yeah. I mean, but, but, I think but, that's a that was the brilliant. But I thought one, yeah. you said without extensive makeup. Is that not considered extensive makeup? He had padding and no. I would I'd say John Hurd and Elephant Man was a brilliant job, but that's very extensive makeup. That so that's out. Right? Extensive makeup. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I went with uh, Tilda Swinton in the Grand Budapest Hotel because they made her look really old, and yeah, you couldn't recognize That's her. Right. They didn't do crazy CGI and all that. Yeah, because like crazy CGI. Well, so like um, I, what I love about this is that you kind of like it's a it's a workaround. Obviously, there's probably a plug-in that we could figure out at Ricochet to like make this easier. But I do like the idea that everyone has to like uh, you get to like. Everybody gets to talk and argue, and then you pick your official answer, and that's that's your official nomination and that's what you that's how you measure the likes on the official designated thing is there anybody who's like um uh <laughs> sometimes when i get talking about movies with people and i you know I, I mean i'm willing to sort of listen to their political beliefs that i may disagree with and i'm I, and I understand how to do that respectfully but sometimes when people say oh, i didn't like a movie or i did like a movie and i didn't like it or i liked it i get really mad like, mm-hmm. I'm like, are you kidding They're me? It's like incorrect. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, 
they're not just mistaken they're evil yeah like mm-hmm. how could you you know uh does it ever come up i mean you know we obviously we have rules here at ricochet above civil discourse but like you talk about people's favorite movies sometimes you're, you're that's, that's third rail stuff yeah it's, it's kind of the good and the bad because at some point at one level there's people that i completely disagree with on the site on everything when it comes to <laughs> medical stuff or politics or whatever but in movies we're like in lockstep and then the opposite people who i get along with and we can argue all week about something and be on the same side and then all of a sudden like drew in wisconsin he and i are complete opposites when it comes to movies lc and i would get along pretty well on both um myth white male and i we can go back and forth in in both categories so it's just you get a completely different perspective but somebody you've been arguing with all week and you're kind of frustrated with right. them on the politics stuff by the time you get to saturday you guys are in the same side talking about just movies and it's just like way to just that's great can you name an instance in, in instance yeah, when you right. changed your mind or when the when the process when the the, the fight club changed your mind about a movie so ah, actually that that movie i better go watch that one again uh no my opinions are always <laughs> spot on <laughs> who's the reigning champ right now uh the reigning champ is actually i am fine so all right okay he's got i think eight wins and then i used to see scrub and lc are both up there as well wow okay we should I, have a crossover with a dispatch so that the people who think that david french is wrong about everything can agree that he's wrong about everything in movies as well <laughs> Yeah, I actually, yeah, I, I, David, I think is one of those people that I kind of, I, I often read him. I, no surprise to you, I agree with him uh, on a lot of stuff. But then the movie, sometimes I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Um, We've got plenty of that. It does make me call into question other things, right? I, 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 um, I, so, I, yeah, I think David yeah, would would burn the original Master of Citizen Kane if it meant he had a 4K version of Aquaman. So, yeah. That's <laughs> yes, right. Exactly right. Um, so, what what are your like? Um, I was going to say, like, what are your favorite movies? But w- what are the movies that you fe- find you go to, right? The, I don't mean the ones that that intellectually you put in the top ten. But there's some movies for me when when I had back when I had DirecTV, when people had just had such a thing, and there was a grid, and I'd flop myself on the sofa and flip around and just watch every channel for ten seconds. There are certain movies that if they were on, I would stop. Yeah, I've got a bunch of those. I'm a child of the '80s, so. You know, Empire Strikes Back was one of the first movies I saw in the theater when I was like yeah. five years old. And so that's when I used to go to. And oh, my God. Know every line. It's just a comfort movie when you're sick or whatever. But as I've gotten older, a little bit more mature. Um, I just enjoy completely different aspects. So every genre, I probably have a favorite movie. But uh, probably the one I go to most is You Can't Take It With You. Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur. Uh, oh, my God. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's fun. The whole family loves it. Movie. So I find myself gravitating to that if I just want to have a good time. That movie is, well, that script, by the way, is massive, flawless. I, I saw a revival of the play here um, uh, in New York uh, four years ago, maybe five years ago, and you just re- it was it was astonishing. It's like it's perfect, and that movie is perfect too. It's just tight little thing, and Jimmy Stewart, who who, who really doesn't have that part in the play, um, that is not as not as big in the play, um, is fantastic in that role. Yeah, I love all He's things good Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, me too. Me too. Man, the man who shot Liberty Valance is probably up there as well. Yeah, yeah. it's George Kaufman, it's Moss Washington. Hart script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Rob, you find this as um, yes. as a reason that people might do something with their money. I feel what, like what the, in addition to talking about movies, um, what I'm glad, what I'm really, really pleased that we have Vince on to talk about something else that's happening on Ricochet that's not politics and that people are sort of forming little groups together. Um, you don't have to just want to duke it out over um, 
you know, you know who, and you know what, uh, you can, um, talk with friends about, um, civilly about stuff that's really important, like movies. Um, and so that's why we're saying to you, if you're listening to this podcast and you remember Ricochet, we are thrilled all four of us thrilled that you are a member with us. Um, and if you are uh, not a member, this is a perfect reason and time to join and you can join now for a ridiculously low price during our winter membership pledge push you could connect with some amazing people like vince and his team is like co-competitors there in the olympics of uh, movies you can debate big issues of the day and small issues and just tell stories and all backed by the simple code of conduct that keeps things civil and polite and not a swampy mess um and for our winter membership drive you can join us and we'll give you 14 days free of charge so 14 days try it out kick the tires, uh, beat the people, um, join in a couple conversations, decide if you like it. We know you will. That's why we can make that offer. We keep growing and we really want you to grow with us along for the ride. You can post your own articles, comment on podcast posts, and even join groups focused on special areas of interest like this one. And we have some pretty cool members-only gatherings that are coming up. We are planting our flag in this uh, the end of vic- declaring victories, Jay Bhattacharya tells us on COVID, we are getting back together in person. And as a member, you can also watch all these expanded webcasts with leading controversial uh, conservative figures. I call it no dumb questions because we're kind of asking them simple stuff. And, you know, I'm not embarrassed to ask a dumb question. And that gives you FaceTime, some of the biggest newsmakers of the day. So join us for live events. Join us for conversations online. Join us for conversations about movies or anything else. There's tons of that. This is just one slice of what's going on on the site every day, all day. Um, and uh, you you can join a large and happy and civil club. We want you. Sign up today at ricochet.com slash join. That's ricochet.com slash join. Um, and just before we go, I have a couple of things I want to say. that um, we're, In addition to doing um, more personal stuff and more, more you know, in in-person stuff because the declaring COVID over. Um, I'm going to be, I don't know if you're in the East Coast or in Connecticut, I'm going to be speaking at Yale at the, at the William F. Buckley program next month on March 16th. Uh, the, the program is 6 to 8 p.m. I don't know if the program's open, but afterwards, if you're in you know New England Central, we'll, we'll figure out a place to meet um, uh, in New Haven for a drink, uh, maybe even a smoke because there's a, there's a great, uh, the Owl Shop is actually kind of a cool place there to have a smoke. And then, um, and then maybe if, if anybody's interested, we should actually talk about this in the member feed about getting together uh, in New York because um, that would be kind of fun too. No, for no other purpose other than getting together. Um, eventually, we're going to have more, you know, we have more events coming up with people and stuff. But I think right now, just to plant the flag in the, we declare COVID now officially over, you know, come raise a drink like a human being. Um, I think that's going to be a, a, a big part. Yeah, of I had movement. one thought. If you won't join Ricochet for Rob, yeah, sure. join Ricochet for Vince. The man has, <laughs> yeah. The man well, I think has that's actually probably better. <laughs> kids. He has eight kids in Alaska. That means that at this time of the year, the kids are spending a lot of time right in the. He needs to be able to get to his computer. He needs to meet people. You got on twenty minutes of daylight club. up there. So right. think of this as an act of charity. It's your good deed for the day. Join Ricochet for our friend Vince. <laughs> that's good. Join that's the movie Fight Club, and he'll be in your corner like Burgess Meredith. <laughs> And every one of those Rocky, Rocky movies, which I'm sure you've seen all 17 of them. Vince, thanks. We'll see you at Ricochet, of course, and uh, everybody else. Join up so you can you can fight as well. 
See you later, Vince. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vince. All right. Thanks. No disrespect to Mike Gallagher, but the center of the universe actually starts in Arrowhead Stadium. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's right. Take a shot when the guy's gone. All right. So maybe you are listening to this podcast um, and thinking, as Rob and Peter have told you, that you ought to join. But also, if you're listening to this podcast, what are you listening to it on? That's a quick question, all right? You got headphones on? Are you on your treadmill thumping along? Thump, 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 and you find yourself having to keep putting your your bed in because it gets sweaty and it falls out? And maybe your resolution was, I've got to find a better way to listen to things than using these things that slip out of my ears. Well, if that was your resolution, you didn't follow up. And then I understand we all make these resolutions, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't find a way to shake things up. The year is still new, whether it's by switching up that workout routine or by going someplace new or, well, listen, however you challenge yourself this year, if there's no better way to do it than with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears, give you a soundtrack for the life you want to lead. Raycon wireless earbuds are the best way to bring audio with you because no matter how much you shake things up, literally, I mean, no matter how much you shake, they will not fall out of your ears. Their everyday earbuds look and feel and sound better than ever. There's also something called the awareness mode for when you need to listen to what's around you so you can take your Raycons wherever you happen to go. You're on a street that feels a little dodgy, switch to awareness mode so you can hear them crunching up behind you in the snow. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they will not budge. Trust me on this one. And you know why I like that? This is going to sound really stupid, but with those white earbuds, if they fall out of my ears and I'm walking along the streets of Minneapolis, they go into a snowbank, they're gone. I'm not going to find them. They're gone. The blue Raycons, uh, if, if they fell out of my ears and they don't, I can see them in the snow. That's just perhaps one of the least important reasons you want. But when you compare it to the sound and uh, the fit, yeah. So Raycons offer more. Of course, eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And the price just right. Get quality audio at half the price of the other audio brands. So it's no wonder that Raycons Everyday Earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. And right now, Ricochet listeners, which would be you, can get 15% off your Raycon order by buyraycon.com slash ricochet. That's buy, B-U-Y, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash ricochet to save 15% on Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash ricochet. And we thank Raycon for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, gentlemen, before we go, uh, a couple of things. There's Canada, and there was PJ. PJ O'Rourke died this week, and at first it seemed like this was the sort of thing that he might have written a great piece about because nobody was actually sure it was him. They thought it was some some Irish gardener whose obituary had surfaced. That's what I thought, and I had this little hope because it couldn't be true. It shouldn't be true. It ought not to be true, but it was. And a wonderful guy. I mean, a brilliant humorist, gold standard. You can't get fun. It is it is clinically and empirically impossible to be funnier than P.J. O'Rourke was. Even Rob stands in awe and, and realized that, you know, Rob, you couldn't steal his stuff because everybody would say, that's, that's P.J. Oh, yeah. quality. Very that's P.J. quality right him. there. Yeah. But the other thing is that he was, and you want to be remembered as thus, was a great guy to be around. He was a great guy to talk with. He had that, 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 that smile, that, uh, <laughs> that, that uh, light in his eyes and uh, the, the uh, observations and remarks that he made, it was a, it was a pleasure to make his company, you know, to, to, to make his friendship and meet his company. Rob Long was brilliant. And Rob, uh, the, yes. the day, the Concise, day, the people, thank you. Uh, that was, good night, everybody. Oh, we're going to link to right a, a brief appreciation of PJ that Rob and I recorded the day PJ died. You had some great interviews with him. I, well, all you have to do is ask a question and then get out of the way when, when PJ O'Rourke yeah. is your guest. Yeah. 
I, what, what struck me, this is my 10 seconds on PJ. I've already had a chance to say what I wanted to say on that little appreciation, and we'll link to it. But looking at Twitter, going around the... I, PJ was friends with every journalist in America. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, everybody, it, it, generation unto generation unto generation... Everybody had had a drink with PJ or a cigar with PJ or had had yeah, yeah, yeah. a compliment from PJ on their own work. He was he just had a honestly a bigger capacity for friendship than of course I'm in California so I lost touch with the East Coast circles but he was every journalist's friend. Yeah, I mean he was I mean I think but also people forget that one of his secrets was that he did the research. You know, he did the work, he did the homework, he did the reading. It seemed like he was sort of the bad kid in class, you know, the naughty kid. He did the reading. He went to the places he, he knew what he was talking about. And so when he wrote, he wrote from a position of great intelligence and, and, and background. Um, and that was sort of the, the foundation of everything he said that was funny was that it was also true. And it was also reflected his, um, his hard work, uh, and I think we might have lost that now. I mean, I, you see people on all these news channels and they, and they, what do you, like, I think at the beginning of the, the Republican analyst or Republican strategy, Democratic analyst, all these people who right. don't know anything really, haven't done the reading, haven't done the research, don't even know. And they're just, their job is I'm a commentator. Yeah. I remember seeing somebody once apply for a job and saying, one of the things they've done is they, I'm, I'm a keynote speaker. <laughs> exactly. And what I thought, well, what, what, what do you, about right. what? Mm -hmm. It's like no, about nothing. Right. I don't. I don't know anything. I just talk. And PJ, uh, he knew stuff, and I think that really yeah, set him apart. And a stark contrast to Hunter S. Thompson, who also wrote in Rolling Stone. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson just showed up places drunk and then made stuff up. You're right. PJ right. did the research, and I remember reading him. I remember him being a destination read in these places, and you wonder if there's a journal like that again. If 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 somebody like him could flourish again. Well, we had him. And that's what counts. So rest in peace, right. BJ. Toast him. I toasted him on the, the bookshelf with the, a Jameson's the other night, which I believe was his whiskey of choice. Moving yeah, sadly, it was Dewar's, but... Oh, it was? Well, I've got Dewar's in the yeah. house, too, as well. He had terrible taste in, in liquor, I gotta Dewar's say. Is, Dewar's is not that bad. I mean, well, when you drink a lot of it, you want the cheapest you can get. I think what he... I think what his... His point was... It, if you're buying, he's got yes, good taste. If yes, he's buying, yes. it's going to be a doer's. Yeah. So before we go, San Francisco, uh, apparently, the which is now filled with white supremacist racists who are part of the general large right-wing uh, efforts to completely delegitimize school and teach nobody about anything. Uh, one in San Francisco, that's what I'm reading, that the school board losses in the recall were due to the same old well-funded dark money right-wing apparatus that is bent on drawing a call of ignorance over the heads of uh, young men. Or, or maybe they've gone so far that the people of San Francisco say, no, I'm sorry, you're not going to rename a school, take away Washington's name, and put some flavor of the month in there. No, you're not this much, but no more. What do you think it is? Rage. Rage, rage. This is the second event of its kind. Conservative Republicans took over the Greenwich Town Council in Greenwich, Connecticut, of all things. And my friends right. in Greenwich say it's because the mothers in that town were furious that their kids hadn't been able to go to school. And here in San Francisco, these people are still liberal. I'm sure they're still, they subscribe to every screwball ideology. 
but they know what's good for their children and keeping their kids out of school is bad. Three members of the school board were up for a recall and three members of the school board got voted out by a margin of three to one. It was just an eruption of rage. This is a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. And I think we just need to, um, those of us who believe in school choice uh, need to take to grab this moment. Um, School choice is a very hard thing to get people to to implement. It's not hard to get people to agree to on a poll right. or in a survey because it sounds fine. It sounds right. It makes sense, right? But then when you tell parents, okay, we are, uh, we're going to change your school system tomorrow thanks to this initiative, parents balk at that. And they're like, well, I, I figured my school out. I figured, that where I, I, I'm, I, I figured it all out. Um, this is the moment, I think, where uh, school choice advocates can say, you see, they don't care about your kids. And you've been teaching them almost on, on your own for two years when the schools have been closed. I mean, San Francisco schools were closed forever. Uh, uh, and and now, now it's time for you to take the power back. And when you see that, that's essentially why you have a, a Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. That's what happened in, you know, happened in three points in the country. It is a trend. Um, and I think the school choice advocates who are kind of exhausted after 25 years of fighting the battle kind of the wrong way, maybe. Um, this is the time to sort of, uh, this is the time to make real progress. I mean, we could have, we could have school, cho school choice ballot initiatives in, you know, maybe a dozen States in the next this is the time. 12, yeah. 18 months. Make yeah. hay while the sun goes Nova. I just like the fact right. that Peter Robinson ripped off the genial mask and revealed the true anger at the heart of the entire conservative movement. Rage, he says, rage, but he's absolutely Correct. Uh, and that'll play out over and over and over again. Or so we like to think. So we like to think that actually the overplaying of the hand, that all of the things, all the concatenated miseries that we have gone through in COVID are going to result in some sort of upending of the Etch-A-Sketch and a good firm shake thereof. But we'll see. And of course, one of the reasons you'll be able to, one of the ways you'll be able to see what's happening or listen is by tuning into this podcast and its perpetuity will be assured if you join today. And also we want to thank our sponsors, Pendulum, Baiju's Future Schools, and Raycon. Support them for supporting us. Join Ricochet. Give us those five stars at Apple Podcasts for some strange reason that I keep mentioning. You're going to do it right. Yes, you are. And that's it for us. We'll see you next week. Peter, Rob, uh, see you next week. At next week, boys. Now, at this very moment, as a matter of fact, in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Do you want to dance? Yeah! Well, it's time to
minute ricochet join the conversation Make me wanna Shout. lift my head up. 